And so to see them actually have a dream, I remember when I first started having to explain what dreams were, you know, because they didn't know, like this one little girl, her name Morselin, her mom, she's not little anymore, but her mom didn't know what a dream was. And I, I wondered like, what, does it, is it I'm saying the word wrong? Like, but it was that the concept wasn't there. The concept of like having a big dream for the future that you could get out of here, that you could go someplace, there's anything is possible, wasn't something that they, that they were taught or like that they had. Hi, I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune, where every week we explore the ideas, values, and practices that bring us together and help us live a healthy and purpose-filled life. There are some problems so big, it's hard to imagine that we, as individuals, have any power to make things better. Wars, poverty, disease, global warming. But in today's episode, we talk to two people who found themselves on the front lines of such big fights. When we think about solving global warming and reducing carbon in our atmosphere, we often jump to renewable energy sources like solar and wind. Or we think about going vegan, eliminating fossil fuels, carpooling. But it turns out one of the most powerful ways to address global warming educating and empowering girls and women. So how does educating girls help save the planet? First up, we talk with Paul Hawken, the author of Drawdown, 100 Solutions to Reverse Global Warming. It's a New York Times bestseller, and we had the chance to sit down with the author himself and ask him some questions. Global warming's a blessing, not a curse, first of all. It is, it is a godsend not, you know, the devil's handiwork. Um, it is feedback. And any system that denies or ignores feedback perishes, dies, and suffers, or suffers, perishes, and dies, you know, whatever. Um, we know that about the human body. So much of health and wellness is about being really attuned and aware and sensitive to feedbacks that the body and the mind uh, are giving us and responding to them in such a way that we, leave, we lead a vibrant, healthy life. And so therefore, if we look at feedback as a curse, then in a sense you're saying, I don't want this feedback. Right. You know? And we do want it, because the feedback leads to transformation. And we all know people who hit the wall biophysically as a body, as a human body, for whatever reason, what they did, or it could be genetically too, but... I mean, it could be practices they undertook or this or that. Whatever it is in their lifestyle, they hit the wall. Right. And that wall, when you talk to those people, they say, God, I'm so glad I hit the wall because yeah. that wall was actually changed my life. And, and this is the same with climate change, which is basically global warming is, yeah, we're going to hit the wall. But we haven't hit the wall. But we certainly know about it. You know, again, the sort of cycle logical part of it, and that is that we read the news and the information and we act as if we're a victim like that it's happening to us you know like well i didn't do this i wasn't you know i don't own exxon shares i didn't drill for oil i didn't blah, 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 blah. well as long as you see the world as something happening to you then you're always going to live as an object you're always going to live as somebody who 
kind of blames others or points fingers or, you know, you, it's, it's the most egoistic thing you can possibly do is to think it's happening to you. It's so narcissistic, you know, and really it's happening for you. And then when you understand that climate change, global warming is happening for us, that it's a gift, it's a blessing, that it is the pathway to transformation, then the first thing you do is not blame and shame and demonize other people. You do speak truth to power. You do resist. You do act. But it's not as though you see the world as other. You see people as other, and you divide it. You actually take full responsibility for yourself uh, for, the, for where we are, and then you decide what are you going to do with your life given what you know. And it's about innovation, creativity, about imagination, about coming together, about connection. It's quite extraordinary. I've never heard it put that way. Um, and I think that your expression, I think it will, it will resonate. I mean, it, it is. It is resonating with a lot of people that I think um, that are looking for personal empowerment and to take personal responsibility. I want to get into that subject of kind of personal empowerment and, and personal responsibility. Um, but, I, you know, first I want, I, may, I want you to set the table a little bit on, on Project Drawdown and maybe even just explain what Drawdown means. Well, Drawdown in the context of, of climate um, refers to the first time on a year-to-year basis where greenhouse gases peak and then go down. In other words, drawdown. In other words, where rather than emissions, greenhouse gas emissions going up year-to-year, they plateau and go down. So we use that as a name because we think if you don't name the goal, then you're not going to achieve it because you don't know where you're going. And so we wanted to name the goal. And the, when when the goal is bigger, we don't think it's so you know bigger. We think it's right, but bigger, it opens up possibility, as opposed to forecloses possibility. How did the the concept for this project start and and evolve? And um, and how did you gather all of the resources together to to accomplish it and to execute it? Well, we didn't have any resources. The, the idea for it started with me in 2001, and I just felt like we needed to know where we where do we stand. You know, I, I didn't know that's for sure. And like, do we have a way out? Is it game over? Do, you know, what are the solutions and tools at hand? Are they practical? Are they economical? Do they have impact? Can they scale? You know, these are all the questions I had in 2001, and I asked a lot of institutions. To you know, let's do it. Let's figure, let's make a list. You know, so we went out to the great educational institutions all over the world, universities, and solicited what we call drawdown research fellows or drawdown fellows, and they became the research scientists. These were half of their PhDs, almost half women, 22 countries, six continents. You know, and and from amazing, amazing people, White House fellows, Rhodes scholars, Fulbright scholars. And they became um, our staff, in a sense, or we worked together. We became, a, we were a coalition of people, and each one of them did one solution or two in some cases. And and then we added 120 some odd advisors, and did we got uh, outside scientific advisors as well to go over the models, which are very complicated system dynamics models. And with all that, we created. Um, the model and the book 
you know, drawdown. Yeah, I was interested. It was interesting how you kind of broke it up into different sectors, um, sort of uh, land use and transport and electricity generation. There's another um, topic that I thought was just so interesting and, and unexpected, and I also am biased to it because I have three daughters. Um, is 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 educating girls. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. The number six solution is educating girls. And girls are pulled out of school all over the world, pre or at puberty, for a number of reasons. One is embarrassment because the girl does not all the train for the girls at school, which is, you know. Uh, second, because they're put to work to put their boys to the boys to school, the brothers, so the girl goes to work so the brother can keep stay in school. A third reason is early marriage, and that comes from traditions, cultures, religions. There's lots of influences on that. Um, get the girl out of the house so you don't have to feed another mouth, somebody else is feeding her. There's a lot of reasons why girls are pulled out of school, none of them good in my way of thinking. And what we know is that that girl whether she goes to work or, or early marriage, she's going to have an average of five plus children. And that data are, God, we've known that for 40 years. There's nothing new about that data. And um, But if she is supported um, to go to continue her education to what we would call high school level, uh, she has an average of two plus children. However, she's better educated. She earns more money. Uh, those children that she has um, benefit from that. Their health outcomes are much, much better than the poor woman who has not a good education and has five children, whether she's married or whether her husband's left her. And um, those children, sons and daughters, both replicate their mother's behavior, which is they have much fewer children, two plus children, and um, and they take better care of them, and they have better education and better outcomes. So now, educating girl is a pathway to family planning, but it's not family planning in the traditional sense. It's family planning by empowering that girl to become a woman on her terms, or more on her terms than otherwise uh, would be, and that's what she chooses. And you know, she's educated, she's smart, she's, <laughs> she knows what she wants and she knows what she can do and she wants to take care of children. She can't do it in poverty with a lot of running around the house or if she even has a house. So that's number six solution. Number seven solution is actually family planning, um, which is having clinics available to women world over to support their reproductive health and well-being in their families. And you put those two together, actually, and that that would be, in, in data points, the number one solution, which is an empowerment of, of girls and women. And uh, I think I think women have been really left out uh, in the climate discussion, um, in almost absurdly. So, I remember I had a professor at at UC Santa Cruz, and after I said pretty much what I just said to you in a talk, um, he asked the question, he said, yeah, but how do we control population? You know, it's the number one problem. If there wasn't so many people, blah, 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 blah. And I said, lose the verb. And uh, he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, lose the verb control. That's the problem. It's in power. That's the verb. Mm-hmm. 
if we empower girls and women, they know what to do. <laughs> it's like, but right. control isn't going to work, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, the more um, I listen to you, like this project, I mean, it, it obviously very specifically addresses global warming um, and solutions for global warming, but it seems like it just imagines a better world more holistically, even outside the issues relating to climate. Well, yeah, because I think historically, if we go back and the, the world of climate science is dominated by men, and I think there was a tendency, and I'll speak for our gender, like, well, we need a super wicked solution. We need an incredible solution. We need a big, big solution for a big, big problem. And so the emphasis was on energy, which is right. I mean, it is responsible for 60 plus percent of the emissions on a year-to-year -year basis. And so the focus was on energy, as if, as I said earlier, if we get that right, then somehow we're okay. Um, and um, it, but that's like slowing down, going over the cliff, you know. Which is right. you could then be, you could have a clean energy world and go right over the cliff in terms of global warming. <laughs> so, and you can't solve it without going to clean energy too. So, you know, both are true. And um, I just feel that it's a system that caused the is causing, you know, global warming, and it's a system that heals it. And what's so interesting about the 100 solutions is that 98 of them are what uh, are called no-regret solutions, which is that if there was not a climate scientist alive or we were clueless here on planet Earth as to what was causing extreme weather, you know, we were superstitious, it's just the gods or whatever, uh, we would want to do these 98 solutions because they have so many benefits um, to uh, health and work and prosperity and our children and the future and water and air and biodiversity and critters and, you know, just, it goes on and on and on. Uh, and so we don't really, we don't, we shouldn't see addressing global warming as something other, you know, like, well, right. we have a, you know, we have a, I have a business to run, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's an add-on. It is not an add-on. Yeah. <laughs> Destroying the planet is the add-on, and that's the one we got to stop. <laughs> so I want to build a tiny bit about kind of the metaphor I think you posed earlier, kind of with the human body and, and bring it to kind of a personal level. I haven't been sleeping so great, so my wife says, okay, well, I was telling you earlier, I'm weaning off coffee, and I'm not having that glass of wine, and I'm not having no dairy and no wheat. And really what I'm doing is changing my human behavior to address it issue to address right. the problem. Uh, I grew up in, in New York City in bars and I could never imagine people not smoking in bars. You know, I was, ah, this is right. never going to work, you know, and now you, you get you get castigated from society if you, if you smoke indoors anywhere. Um, and then we've largely eliminated chlorofluorocarbons and committed to fixing the ozone layer. I think we've created some other problems in that process that I'm sure you know better. But there are examples where on a both personal level and a societal level, we have been able to shift human behavior. And Tom Steyer wrote a pretty, a really just a very hopeful forward to the book and pointed to kind of some, some successes, particularly like in California, you know, that, that kind of might give us hope around 
the change in behavior and the change in policy. And I wonder if you could talk about what are some of those kind of uplifting messages and some of that data that we've been able to see that might indicate sort of a hopeful way forward. Well, um, I'm going to surprise you again. I'm not a big fan of hope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that, that's uh, a, maybe that's a poor word choice. I understand that. No, no, yeah. everyone uses it. It's uh, no, I mean, it's, and people say, "Oh, it's such a hopeful book," and I said, "I hope not." Our book is a, rea- <laughs> is a is a reality project, and the reason I I kind of make poke fun at hope is because hope. Let's go back to psychology. Hope is the pretty mask of fear. There's no such thing as hope without fear. And what we need to be now is fearless, actually, in what we do, what we say, how we act, um, what we represent, what we uphold. We need fearlessness. You know, hopefulness is, to me, wimpy. You know, I mean, people push back on that one, you know, because they want to be hopeful, you know. But to me, hopeful is sort of like a delusionary. And... um, and I'm not interested in it because I think people really want to know what to do. And if you go back to the idea that this is an incredible problem statement, which it is, every problem, every single problem is a solution in disguise. You have a problem with your relationship? Go for it because it's telling you something. <laughs> and, and so it doesn't matter what the problem is. Every problem contains solutions. And this one contains a plethora of extraordinary solutions. What we are trying to do at Drawdown is to create the conditions for that, the conditions for the world to self-organize around reversing global warming, not to say, not to know, not to declare, not to dictate, not to manage, it's a fool's errand, all those things. And that is by providing models and information and the book is going into, what, 11 languages this year? I mean, and, and the model is going into 15 universities and be localized and regionalized. is to provide the means with which people can understand what to do, where they are, in ways that even we don't understand, you know. So what I love about Project Radon is that we're not right. We don't try to be right. We try to be helpful. And there's a real difference between that. We're not top-down. We're not charismatic white male vertebrates saying, I have a plan, you know. Right. And the, the, the subtitle says the most comprehensive plan ever proposed. But the reason it says that is because we say we found the plan, that humanity collectively has a wisdom, and it does have a plan. And we, just by doing the mapping, measuring, and modeling the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming, we're saying, look at there, there's a plan. Yeah. You know, again, not our plan. It's our plan. You, me, your wife, your daughters, all of us. This is our plan. We have one. We're acting on it. It's scaling. It's amazing. And what we need to do is accelerate. spirit of smart women saving the world, in this next segment, our producer, Sarah Klegman, got to chat with an incredible woman who is doing the actual on-the-ground hard work of educating girls in West Africa. Katie Myler is a Time Person of the Year, recognized for her work on the front lines of Ebola. 
Katie grew up on government assistance in the U.S. and thought she was poor. Traveling abroad to a developing country for the first time, she realized she was one of the world's wealthiest people, and she had to do something about it. Katie led the organization she founded, More Than Me, to win $1 million from the Chase Bank American Giving Awards. In September 2013, she, alongside Nobel laureate and Liberian president Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, cut the ribbon to More Than Me Academy, the first tuition-free all-girls school in Liberia. I run an organization that is partnering with the Ministry of Education here in Liberia to ensure that every single young girl is off the street and into school, um, safe, healthy, and learning. And now we have boys as well. Uh, a part of lifting girls is also lifting boys. Um, and we, I am sitting in our headquarters here in Monrovia, Liberia. Long story short, my first job out of college got, uh, got this like fellowship position almost like a Peace Corps situation where they sent me to Liberia. So I was 23 um, when I moved here. Um, so that's how I got to Liberia. So I've been here for about uh, 12 plus years now. So we ended up starting our first school, um, four girls that were from this, one of the most impoverished slums in West Africa called West Point. It's an area where nobody wants to even go in to this day. West, you know, uh, Peace Corps and Americans, you know, U.S. government workers are not allowed in the slum. I just actually came from there. Um, but it's, there's no, you know, open sewage, people living in makeshift homes. Um, and during Ebola, that was the, you know, the hardest hit area in all of West Africa. Um, so it's just like, it's a, you know, an informal community called West Point. So that's where our students were from. There was no place to actually build a school. There was no location. The government ended up giving us a, a building downtown Monrovia in 2000. So they gave it to us in 2012. We opened the school in 2013, September 7, 2013. Uh, but it was like a bombed out looted building. You know, you wouldn't even believe this was a building. Everyone laughs when I show them the original photo. Yeah, I remember seeing it in that part of your talk. You were like, and they gave us a building and there was all this buildup. And then you put this giant picture of the screen of this just decrepit, barely yeah. a building building. Yeah, exactly. So that was the first, I mean, that was the first academy. And it, I mean, those girls are really like, they're my life. And, you know, I live and breathe you know, they're my everything. I mean, I, they're the purpose for why I'm on earth. And, uh, and so we, we opened up the, the year, the first year was, um, we had an international staff co-teaching with Liberian teachers. And it was, I mean, it, the first year was, was exciting to see the kids, you know, they're definitely learning more than they were at the other school, like the schools they had previously come to, but, uh, it was the first time we had a school. Um, so, and, but we had, you know, we also had school meals and we had a, what do you call it? A social worker and a nurse's office and all these, it was wraparound services. It was a, every, every barrier that a young woman faced to getting an education, we were, you know, working our hardest to address it, strengthening the, you know, community PTA and doing, you know, doing all this stuff. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of difference in the need for the goal of educating girls specifically? For me, my passion comes back to the most vulnerable and girls are the most vulnerable. It, to me, what it means is, is just ensuring that people who would normally not get a fighting chance in the world, um, you know, because of the amount of sexual abuse and the amount of, um, and just, just generally how women are looked on in this, in this society, even though Liberia has had the first woman president, which is amazing. And they have her as an example, you know, there's still so many practices that hold women back. I mean, besides the girls school, we have 18 public schools we run that have boys and girls, um, out of, out of all the partners running, running these schools in the country, we have, uh, they're called partner schools. We have the highest gender parity um, in those schools, so like the highest ratio of girls to boys. Um, however, you still see 
way more boys than girls. And when you look at preschool, there's there, they start in preschool, they, there's, there's way more girls. And then when you get to sixth grade, you'll have a, a graduating class of maybe 10 uh, children. And you're lucky if you see one girl make it to, and that's six, this is just, that's preschool to sixth grade. Um, and the reason why these young girls are dropping off, like I said earlier, is Liberia has one. It was literally the second highest teen pregnancy rate in the world. Um, that was a stat from a couple of years ago. Um, and I, you know, it's still one of the highest in the world. When you don't have an education and, um, and you even ask the moms, I remember when I first started, I'm like, why do you put your boys in school and not your girls? They're like, well, our girls are just going to become mothers and they have to take care of their kids, but our boys will go on to get jobs and make money, and then they can give that money back to us and support the family. When all evidence proof, like, is actually the opposite. All evidence shows that when girls are educated, they actually use their money to, for their families, and boys will go out and drink with their friends. And I mean, of course, I'm not saying all boys are bad, but that's you know fact. Fact right. that girls reinvest their money back into their family and their children. They make sure their kids are educated. Uh, educated woman live, you know, their her kids live longer. Like there's so many crazy multiplier effects to why girls. So like the process of educating a girl, I, of course, we're, you know, the things that would come up are um, making sure they're safe in the schools because they are more vulnerable than boys. And that's just, so you have to really pay attention to that um, specifically to sexual abuse in schools. Um, and I mean, I speak very personally from this. We've had, we actually have had sexual abuse case in our school that we had to report the first year. Um, and what I've learned from that is like through the years, it's like how common, um, unfortunately se sexual abuse is, but it doesn't get talked. People are not, they don't, girls don't feel safe enough to talk about it. And when they talk about it, there's no action. They don't win anything. They, they get disconnected, you know, their community shuns them. Um, and they often need their communities to survive. Um, so like safety is a big part of that education process. Um, uh, another piece obviously is their health. Um, and making sure that they have access to, um, you know, well, boys and girls both have malaria and all this stuff, but, but there's, you know, feminine hygiene and, and girls' health in that sense, which is an obvious one. And, and, but, I mean, people do talk a lot about, uh, and there's a lot of studies that show, you know, girls leave school during their period, they're, you know, when they're menstruating for, and they miss a week of school. Um, so there's like a aspects of that, um, in, in the schools, they have, you have to make sure there's latrines. If they, if there are no bathrooms or latrines for girls to use, they don't come to school. Um, so like just a lot of different aspects. I mean, in, in our school, in the girls Academy and, and all that's a, you know, all that's a part of our program. Um, you see the confidence and sisterhood and all these other, you know, aspects of, of having an all girls school that's been, um, that are a part of our culture. And, um, you know, I think it's an exciting part of, of of educating young women. What have you personally witnessed on the ground in the last five years? And it might not be a lot, it might be a lot. Um, the difference of being in this community when, like, before you had, uh, well, before they had you, uh, before the education programs that exist today existed, like, what have you seen change over the last five years? I love that question. And it's because I don't get asked it very often. And I'm I just had the most amazing, I've been here for back in Liberia for a few weeks and um, we had some international volunteers. They literally are some of the wealthiest, um, more, most privileged, you know, of, uh, they're UK Americans that were here. And I love these young, these young girls and they're, they're actually pretty global. Uh, and so they came and they've done a lot of work internationally and they're 17. So they came here and they, we had this night with them with, there was like six of them. And then we brought six Liberian girls from our academy and they stayed at this 
resort, Liberian resort, which was a life experience. It was amazing for it to see that for our young uh, Liberian students. And I watched and I didn't, you know, I wasn't really saying much, but we, I was like, open mic night, let's everybody hear us to sing a song. <laughs> I don't care how good you are or bad you are. And it was unbelievable to see the UK American girls, they, and who are, I'm very close to their, you know, to them and their, but they also, you know, they were really self-conscious of their bodies and um, were of their voice and, you know, they were shy and, and like they couldn't, they couldn't get up there and sing. Like they eventually forced themselves to do it, which we were so proud of them. But our girls from the, from the slums, you know what I mean? They're coming from the academy. So bold and so strong and fierce getting up there and they wanted to go again and again. And it was like, I went to, you know, some of the girls like had tears in their eyes, um, the volunteers, because, and I did too. It was, I'll never forget. It, it was just like the amount of confidence um, that these young, young women have. I mean, we're obviously we're measuring learning outcomes so we can see that our girls actually are learning. So that's, that's obviously an obvious, they're the first people in our families to read. They're the most powerful people in, um, not only their household, but, you know, in the neighboring households because of their, you know, the education they have. Um, but their families and their, it's a, you know, their extended families are all counting on them. It's, it is, there's a lot of pressure for them to be somebody great. And we just had uh, a community meeting a PTA meeting this past weekend with, with the parents and one parent stood up and we're talking about sisterhood because some of the girls from, you know, they, there was some fighting going on and, you know, at the school and the parent stood up and she was like, one of these girls, you're all going to do some, go off and do something great. And, and one of you will eventually be the next like, you know, president of like, you know, female president of Liberia. And they're all shouting and screaming. And they're like, of course. Um, and, and basically the point was like, you guys are going to meet each other like along the way. So you know, get over whatever, you know, get over your, the, the differences that you have. Um, but it's, it's, it's true. It's just like this belief and hope that it's brought, like in, in, over, you know, five, in over five years, you see, like I'm watching, it's like hitting, it literally is just our five-year anniversary of the school. Um, yes, the literacy and the numeracy we, that we measure every, but the, the compounding effect of that over five years uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, it's, it's stunning to see, to see, you know, the leadership that, and the confidence and the, and the hope and the, and the vision that they have for their lives and where they, they girls are telling us where they want to go to college. I mean, their parents have never even heard of these colleges that the girls are naming. They're like, I found it on the internet. Um, and now we're, we're partnering with, um, with a couple different organizations. We're looking for more um, that pay for, for scholarships for girls to either go to school. One, you know, is for Liberian schools. One is international schools. So these dreams these girls have, like, are, you know, and will, some of them will really happen, you know. Many of them will. And at the academy, we, we really drive home that, that these girls are in charge of their own lives. And every day they walk up a set of stairs that says, I promise to make my dreams come true. Um, so they're really the driving factor. I mean, we, we wanna make sure they have every tool necessary, but in the end, they, they decide what happens with their life. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Jeff. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Sarah Klegman is our producer, and she's making uh, one of many, many uh, upcoming cameos 
Um, she did that great interview with Katie. Nice job. Thank you. What an inspiring woman. Oh, Katie's my hero. So help me think this through a little bit, because Paul Hawken theorizes that family planning and educating girls can help curb carbon emissions and turn around global warming. But at the same time, we know that most of the contributors to global warming, at least the top ones, are the United States and China and Russia um, and to some degree India, who are most of those relatively population-stable countries. And what I tend to I think I understand about um, this, this is a family planning issue. Um, so it's a population issue. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. If, if we do not uh, make any changes in that area in developing countries, in the next 30 years that will result in an extra billion mouths to feed. Yeah. And it seems like where we're headed is that the population growth is really focused in these developing countries that in many times denies the resources to women to get educated. Um, and so if you start to play that out over the next 30 years, if there's an additional billion people consuming uh, food, there's waste. There's Building space, energy, transportation. That all of that is adding a hell of a lot of gigatons of carbon. That's a 119.2 gigatons to be exact. That's a hell of a lot of carbon. That's a lot of gigatons. And so obviously there's a direct positive relationship to educating girls on the environment. But it, it goes beyond just global warming. That's like a domino effect, right? When they're more educated, they're likely to have jobs. When they have jobs, they're likely to make money and use that money to support their kids so that the cycle stops. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this amazing um, figure here that... When women and girls earn income, they reinvest 90% of it into their families. As opposed to the statistic for men, which is 30 to 40%. That's sad. Should we, should we talk about some takeaways, though, for everybody? You're the producer. I guess, I guess we should talk about some takeaways. Well, I mean, the first, the first actionable takeaway for this episode, I would say, and I think you would agree, is asking everyone to just check out drawdown.org. Yeah, and you can go there and find 80 of the 100 viable, proven, pre-existing solutions that we can enact right now here on Earth to, uh, to solve global warming. And, you know, it's full of information, but it's also there you'll find actionable things that you can do right now. Whether it's small scale and and working on riding a bike to work, or if it's larger scale and getting involved with a organization in your community that's working towards one of these goals, there are real things you can do. Yeah, you know, because when you start to take that kind of personal responsibility in your life, that is like a butterfly flapping its wings, not only just for your own life, but for your community and the people around you. I think that's a good lead into our second takeaway, which is change your perspective. Yeah, like this is not something, as Paul said, that's happening to us. We are active participants in climate change and in global warming, and we can't continue just to feel numb and paralyzed by the enormity of the problem. There are things that we can do in our own lives and in our own communities, um, not only to solve this problem, but to connect and to raise up human consciousness. Speaking of connecting, takeaway number three... Tell a friend. If you were even 
a, like a, a fraction uh, as surprised as we were that educating women and empowering them is such a big solution to global warming. Tell a friend, hey, listen to this really great podcast. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Those are actionable takeaways. That does it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Come back every week for new episodes. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. We'll see you next week. 